We gather here this morning and we do so with heavy hearts. Especially for the Moats family, the longtime saints of Temple Baptist, as we mourn our dear sister Juanita and the tragic loss of her life, we're reminded, aren't we, that no matter how or when death comes, it captures in the most tangible way this world is not the way it's supposed to be. We cry and we lament and we say, how long, O Lord? So to the Moats family, to the Temple of Baptist Saints, we love you. Uh, We pray with and for you as you navigate the pain of losing your mother, your grandmother, your dear friend. And we pray the Holy Spirit would bring the hope and healing to your splintered souls. In so many ways, death disorients us, our minds race, our hearts sink, our emotions swing, and yet at the same time, death reorients us. As Moses prays in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Here's what Moses prays. He says, teach us to number our days so we can be glad in your love. There's the paradox. Death disorients us and reorients us. It disorients us because it's a problem. But it reorients us because it reminds us of the promise of the hope in Christ. And so though I only had the privilege of knowing Juanita a very short time, uh, it is evident that she lived in the reality of her Lord's deep love. I'll never forget last September, the first time we did baptisms, I came up to her after service and I was talking to her and I just said, uh, Juanita, were you encouraged by service today? And she just smiled real big and she said something I'll never forget. Joey, baptisms, they just do something in my soul. The love of Christ oozed from her. What a joy it was to see her right here singing, especially when we tuned into those old familiar hymns. The few times I had to preach and she listened, she was visibly moved by the word. Juanita had an infectious, resplendent joy. See, she learned that true happiness came not by gaining this world, but by gazing at Christ and following him. I was talking with Carl this week and he'd mentioned how Juanita would often talk of heaven. And that's what Juanita knew. She knew there was more to this world that trusting and treasuring Christ was what it was all about. Our, mod, our sister modeled that well. And in God's providence, that's the text that is before us, that we get to think about these very things. And so I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna work through Luke chapter nine. God, give us grace. Give us grace, we pray, O Lord, that we might unfold the beauty of your word, look to the brilliance of your son, and we might have sorrow and yet always rejoice. Only you can do this, Lord. Pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. I feel like I'm a little loud. Maybe I'm not, but I just feel that. So, loose gospel. 
a meditation on Luke's gospel, King and Kingdom. That's how we've titled this 50 plus week sermon series. We want to gaze at Jesus the King and we want to animate our imaginations with his kingdom, his gracious plan, his grand plan to restore the world. And the driving question in Luke's gospel has been, who is Jesus? Is this not Joseph's son? Some asked back in Luke 4. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? The religious leaders condemned in chapter five. After forgiving the woman, who is this who even forgives sins? People wonder in chapter seven. In chapter eight, Jesus calms a storm with a word and his disciples marvel. Who then is this that he commands even the wind and the water and they obey him? Early in chapter nine, ruler Herod, who is this? whom I hear such things. And in our passage today, Jesus himself asked the question, who do you say that I am? Listen as I read for us Luke chapter 9, 18 through 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God of God. So as we walk through this text, we'll ask and answer three questions. Who is Jesus? Verses 18 through 20. What did Jesus do? Verses 21 and 22. How then should we respond? Verses 23 through 26. That's our roadmap as we'll we'll explore this passage. If you're wondering about verse 27, come back next week. Uh, Nathan gets to pick that up as it leads us into the glorious passage that follows. All right, let's ask and answer our question, shall we? Who is Jesus? So earlier in chapter nine, remember the disciples have been out doing ministry. And in verse 18, we see that, that Jesus, after ministering to the crowds, he withdraws to a little retreat with his disciples, the time of prayer and solitude. During that little retreat, Jesus asked his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? What's the public opinion of me? What's the chatter on Facebook? What's the pew religion poll say about me? Disciples reply, verse 19. They answer, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old is risen. See, the public has various opinions about Jesus. Maybe he's the reincarnate John the Baptist, or maybe Elijah of old has returned, or maybe uh, another prophet has risen. There's no consensus. 
But everyone has an opinion on who Jesus is and and the views are, are high and favorable. He is unique. And I couldn't help but wonder, it sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? Most people have an opinion about Jesus and most of those opinions are good and favorable. What might the crowds of today say? Well, the Muslims say that Jesus is a prophet. Mormons would say that Jesus was a man on another planet who became God. Jehovah Witnesses would say that Jesus was the first of God's great creations. Buddhists would say Jesus is an enlightened teacher. But what about closer to home? What about in the university classroom right over here? You might hear that Jesus was a humanist revolutionary. How about on the hill? What might you hear? Well, Jesus is a a political prop to rally voters to your political party. What about in the coffee shop with that friend? Ah, Jesus is a good guy. What about your neighbor? Yeah, Jesus is a moral example to follow, especially if I'm trying to teach my kids something. Everybody has a take on Jesus. But here's the thing. Rest assured, not all of them can be right. Jesus isn't surprised that various opinions about him exist. He's not surprised. But he's also not satisfied with leaving the conversation at the level of public debate. He presses deeper for a personal decision. Do you see that? Verse 20, but who do you say that I am? Jesus moves the conversation. That you is emphatic and it's plural. Jesus saying, who do you, who do you, who do you, who do you, who do you say that I am? And I can only imagine that after Jesus asked this question, there's a, a, a long, lengthy, contemplative pause. It's a big question, isn't it? But it's not a pop quiz. Perhaps the disciples began to discuss everything they've seen and witnessed. They've seen Jesus cure the sick, cleanse lepers, restore the paralytic, raise the dead, cast out demons. Sinners have been forgiven by Jesus, tax collectors called by Jesus. Enemies are love, prostitutes defended, unclean embraced, weeping comforted, lonely welcomed. They've seen Jesus minister to men and women, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, old and young, powerful leaders, precious little children, public elite, a social outcast. They've seen storms calmed and demons flee at the word of Christ. They've tasted bread created by him and heard the word of God preached by him. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter Oh, Peter, the Christ of God. And yet, we already knew the answer, didn't we? Zechariah has already prophesied about it in Luke 1. The angels declared it in Luke 2. The Father declared it in Luke 3. Satan attacked it in Luke 4. The demons feared it in Luke 8. But now, for the first time, a human adds his voice to the chorus, Jesus, you are the Christ. Peter knows that he, like the rest of humanity, is sinful and he's unable to approach God. He knows that scripture promises one who would come and reconcile God's people back into the sweetness of God's promise. He knows 
This promised one is the king of kings who will rule and reign forever. And he confesses, Jesus, you are the one, the ruler who will redeem your people and restore the world's brokenness, the king who will make everything right, good, and whole again. Jesus, you are the Christ. You're not just another prophet. You're not just a religious leader. You're not just a moral example. You are the Holy One of God, the Christ. And Jesus asks us the same question. Who do you say that I am? Not what your mom and dad says about Jesus. Not what your religious tradition says about Jesus. Not even what John Piper, Lecrae, John Calvin, or Kanye West says about Jesus. Not what does your Facebook friend or your Instagram feed say about Jesus. This morning, Jesus asks us, who do you say that I am? Seven simple words. And yet, the most important question we could ever face and answer. As we'll see, literally, the balance of heaven and hell hang on this question. Eternity is at stake. And I know some of you have had church experiences before where this is where now the pastor tries to manipulate you and guilt you into thinking rightly about Jesus. That's not what I want to do. That doesn't honor God and it's not fair to you as an image bearer of God. But at the same time, I don't want to pretend like Jesus' words are light and fluffy and we can dismiss them as easily as we find another Netflix show to watch. God in his kindness has brought us here this morning that we might consider this weighty and penetrating yet wonderfully promising question. Who is Jesus? For my brothers and sisters in Christ, those that are confessing, Jesus, you are the Christ, just like our sister Juanita did. Take comfort this morning. Praise God for his grace in your life. We don't arrive at this answer because we're somehow smarter than everybody else. We arrive at it by the grace of God. And so this should encourage us and comfort us to enjoy the rich, lavish, wonderful grace that opens our eyes that we may say, you are the Christ. For my friends that are like, I, I, don't, I don't know how I would answer that question. I know how my parents want me to answer it. I know how my friends think about it, but I'm not sure how I think about it. Can I urge you to consider this question? This is the most important question that you will answer. So ask the friend that you came with this morning. Uh, come find me. I'd be happy to get you connected to another member of our church. Uh, if, you, if you don't want to talk to anybody, there's, there's one little red book over here called Who is Jesus? Just sneak up and pick it up and read it. And then as you ask questions, ask somebody about it. 
Jesus is asking us, who do you say that I am? Peter answers, on behalf of the disciples, you are the Christ. And then Jesus tells them exactly what he must do. What did Jesus do? Verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's surprising. You're the Christ. Don't tell anybody. What? What's up with that? It's it's not because their confession is wrong. In fact, at the end of Luke, we read this. This is Luke 24. Very end of the, we'll be there like in December or something. Luke 24. Then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, the Christ should suffer and on the third day be raised from the dead. Sound familiar? And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. What? What's the difference? So Jesus does not deny that he's the Christ. He only delays the timing when they should tell others. Why the delay? Because they knew that while they knew Jesus was the king who would wear a crown, they didn't realize first he must hang on a cross. And that's what Jesus tells them in verse 22. In fact, this is the first of six times in Luke that we'll see Jesus tell of his impending death. He repeatedly tells them, yes, I am the king, but I am a king going to a cross. And in their confession, the disciples connect the dots. The the penciled in outline is there. And now that that outline is there, Jesus begins to color in all of the details so they may see it clearly and fully. And Jesus begins by referring to himself, how? As the son of man. So Jesus is not just saying, hey, I'm a human. He is that. But this title, Son of Man, refers back to the Old Testament, Daniel 7. You can go read about that this afternoon. And it's, it's about a, di- a divine messianic figure who comes with power and authority and glory to make everything right again. So they hear Son of Man, they're like, yes! And Jesus goes, must suffer. Oh. What? You're the Son of Man with power but I'm also the suffering servant pierced for transgressions. See, Jesus is telling his disciples, yes, I'm the Messiah, I'm the king, but I came not to live, but die. I'm not here to take power, but lose it. I'm not here to rule from a throne. I'm here to redeem from a cross, and that's how I'm gonna defeat evil. That's how I'm gonna put everything right, because the grave cannot hold me. I will rise again. This is what I came to do. And notice that word must. Not might happen, not would be good if it happened, must happen. Jesus must suffer. Jesus must be rejected. Jesus must be killed. Jesus must rise again. Why? Why must this happen? This is Jesus' plan and purpose. This must is not the constraint of human limits forced upon Jesus. This must is compelled by divine love flowing from him. 
See, Jesus knows there's, there's no other way. There's no other way for a holy, clean, pure, righteous God to be reconciled with an unclean, rebellious people. And yet God, in his infinite grace, promised he would redeem his wayward people even at cost to himself. The Bible begins with Adam and Eve enjoying the goodness of God's creation, the blessing of God's presence in a garden. Do you know how the Bible ends? A greater garden. God's people in a greater garden, everlasting city, the new Jerusalem, unending bliss, experiencing the world as it was always meant to be. God's redeemed people living in a fully restored world, worshiping a resurrected king, enjoying the goodness of God's creation, happily working, shining forth God's glory for the good of our image bearers while basking in the presence of God's forever presence, forever and ever. And in between the Garden of Eden and the greater Garden of Heaven is the must of verse 22. This must confronts us with an uncomfortable truth. Our rebellion against God is worse than we think and deeper than we realize. We are broken and we're imperfect. But it's not because of only what happens outside of us. It's because of what's inside of us. Yes, we need healing but we also have to realize we've wounded. We've wounded others. And even more tragic is we've offended God. All of us. We doubt God's love. We deny his word. We distrust him. And this is what the Bible would call sin. Rebelling against God, rejecting his word, just loving something more than God. And sin separates us from God. And because God is life, Sin brings what? Death. And because God is just, sin requires payment. It's injustice against God. This must confronts us with an uncomfortable truth. But this must comforts us with unfathomable good news. Jesus took death on himself, not for his sins, but all who would trust him. Jesus took on death. He paid our debt. And as we'll sing right after this sermon, now my debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me, whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. This must is about God providing for us what God demands from us. This must is divine love in its purest form. God who is love taking on the flesh of humanity in the person of Jesus Christ, living a perfectly loving life, laying down a willing sacrifice for wayward, undeserving rebels. This must is about the lavish, rich, all-sufficient, sin-atoning, Satan-defeating, hope-giving, relationship restoring mercy and grace of Jesus Christ who bore our sins on that old rugged cross. That's what this must is about. But beloved, it doesn't end there. He must be raised. As S.M. Lockridge preached decades ago, Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. The grave couldn't hold him. Yeah, that's my king. That's my king. That's our great hope this morning. 
The king went to a cross and he paid for our sins, but the king rose again. The enemy of death has been defeated. Now all those who admit their rebellion against God confess Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, and cling to Jesus as the thing, the person who fulfills God's holy requirement on their behalf. Now God is not a demanding judge. He is a devoted father who says, come on home. Come on home. This is what Jesus must do. And and notice, according to Jesus, it must be this way. Jesus is not one road up to the mountain of God. I know that sounds exclusive, but it is. And we're all exclusive in our beliefs. It's no more wrong to think one religion is right than one way to think about all religions is right. They're both exclusive, just in different ways. But the beauty of this must, the beauty of this must, is it is beautifully inclusive. So inclusive, it includes mess-ups like me. So inclusive that a man like me who is riddled with sin, shame, failure, can be reconciled to God. See, if my hope depends on my performance, I've got no hope. I'm just not good enough. And the only way I could be good enough is if I start comparing myself to others and saying they're worse than I am. But this, this must, oh, how joyful it is. Oh, how joyful it is. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. You don't have to compare yourself to others. There's no sin, there's no shame that is stronger than God's love for you in Christ. You can be known, fully embraced instantly through Christ who died and be loved unconditionally now and forever. That's the must of this gospel. That's good news. That's good news. Do you you believe that? Do you believe that this is what Jesus came to do? that our greatest problem is not circumstantial. Plenty of problems in the world. But our greatest problem is sin. And the only solution is Jesus. Do you believe there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, that Jesus has done it all to reconcile you back to God as evidenced by his resurrection? That's what Jesus is asking you. How should we respond when we understand who Jesus is and what he's done? Well, we don't have to guess. Jesus tells us. How should we respond? Verse 23. And he, Jesus, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. All right, so notice what Jesus says, if anyone, and then notice the repetition of whoever in verses 24 and 26. So whatever Jesus is going to say here, whatever he's saying applies to anyone who claims to follow Jesus. Is what he's saying radical? Yeah. But it's also just the regular Christian life. No person is exempted and no day is excused. Did you notice that word daily in verse 23? Jesus doesn't have in mind a one-time decision. We don't, we don't like decide to follow Jesus, maybe get baptized and then do whatever we want and say, hey, once saved, always saved. It's not what Jesus is talking about. We respond to Jesus daily. There are no shortcuts. 
I know we're all about like life hacks, like how do we make our life easier? Life hack for this, life hack for that. There's no life hacks when it comes to following Jesus. It's degree by degree, day by day. This does not mean perfection. It means devotion. And what does Jesus require us to do? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Three things that are really just one thing. Jesus is calling us to live a cross-shaped life. A cruciform life, as one author I've been reading puts it. See, we can't follow a crucified Savior without having a cruciform life. The gospel that saves us also shapes us. Jesus is not saying, hey, do this to earn your salvation. That's not what he's saying. It's not possible to make God love us more than he already does in Christ. But what happens is we behold the love of God in Christ and we respond with a love for God. In love, we deny ourselves, take up our cross only because Jesus first loved us, denying himself and taking up his cross. See, imitation, trying to imitate Jesus without having spirit-filled love for Jesus is exhaustion. Jesus is not calling us to a self-fueled, list-demanding exhaustion. He's calling us to a spirit-filled, life-giving enjoyment that we might grow in our understanding of God's love that's already ours in Christ. And you say, how so? And Jesus says, well, deny yourself and take up your cross. And you're like, really? That's the good life? That's the happy life? And Jesus is saying, yes. I'm calling you to reimagine the good life by laying yours down and taking mine up. So what does it mean to deny yourself and take up your cross? Well, again, I think it's helpful to notice what Jesus doesn't say. Notice he doesn't say deny yourself something. Do you see that? So to deny yourself does not mean reluctantly saying no to a list of things. To deny yourself is to renounce ourselves as Lord of anything and to love Jesus above everything. This is not about a list, but love. If Jesus is gonna be king, we first have to remove ourselves from that position, don't we? This is not natural to us. It's not natural to us. So right now, I could take out my iPhone, snap a picture of whatever I'm doing. I think it's so important the world has to see my dinner. I take a picture of it and I post it. And then I check back to see how many likes and thumbs ups I get and it makes me feel good. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that is sinful, okay? I know some of you are like, did he just say that? I didn't say that. It's not inherently sinful. But what I am saying is I think it shows the current of our souls that likes to promote ourselves. That's all I'm saying. Is there's something inside of us that makes us want to promote ourself. Self-promotion, not self-denial, is what comes most natural to us. But in Christ, we're made new and the the Holy Spirit begins to work on us, applies the gospel to our soul, and we we begin to love Jesus more and more, and we turn from our self-centeredness and we lay down our supposed rights to go our own way, and we we begin to live out Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy, but humility, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. And as we do that, we take up our cross. 
Again, Jesus is not talking about physical death here. And I know that because he says daily. Daily. It's true that brothers and sisters around the world are being killed for Jesus. Burkina Faso, last week, 21 Christians murdered because they love Jesus. That happens. But here, Jesus is talking about dying daily to ourselves. He's building on what he just said. Take up your cross. See, we tend to think of the cross as some nice religious symbol. Something we wear on a necklace, put on the back of our car, get tattooed on our arms. But when Jesus spoke these words, the cross was anything but nice. It was vile and offensive. A torturous, public, shameful, slow way to die as you hung naked and choked on your own blood. And Jesus is telling his disciples, take up your cross. Count the cost of discipleship. It is glorious and it is good, but it is not easy. To follow Jesus means we crucify our old self, our old self-centered way of living. We, we don't just add Jesus to an otherwise comfortable life. Jesus, Jesus does not exist to affirm our every desire and, and give us a little bit of support as we, we put our, our Christian spin on the American dream. Jesus is not a, a, a carefree religious guru who's, who's nonchalantly sipping a, a latte and he's fine with nominal devotion to him as long as it doesn't infringe on our comforts and our desires. This version of Jesus is no version of Jesus at all and only dispenses cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man who gave his life for Christ, writes this, cheap grace justifies the sin without justifying the sinner. Cheap grace is grace we bestow on ourselves. Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. The cross is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die, end quote. how the Christian responds. Remember, this is not radical. This is normal Christian life. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross. Why? For the glory of God and the good of others. Isn't that why Jesus did it? See, Jesus isn't just another commodity to consume. The Christian faith is for us, but it's not about us. In every area of our life, there's a radical reorientation Self-promotion, self-protection, convenience, comfort are no longer our highest goals. We, we long to love God sacrificially and supremely and love our neighbors sacrificially. That's what he's saying. And I'm thankful for the many ways this church does that. I'm so thankful for the ways you love one another so thankful for the ways you open up your homes when it's not convenient. I'm so thankful the ways you enter into each other's messiness of life when it's not comfortable. I've even seen that this past week. So thankful for the ways you, you serve at Friendship Terrace, at DC 127, at Mission Muffins. So thankful that some of you get up early to pray when you could be sleeping in. So thankful for the ways that you watch each other's kids so, so parents can get some rest. I'm so thankful for how many of you serve here in Restoration Kids. So thankful for the ways that you try to live out this calling. But we're not perfect. So I'm gonna invite you into my conviction as I got to labor in this passage this week. 
So here are some questions. Is, is this how God might continue to grow us, to deny ourselves, take up our cross? Here's some questions to consider. Is the way you spend or give away your money different because you love Jesus and his people? Can you identify the last specific sin you repented of to God? How about somebody else? Do you prioritize gathering with the church or only attend if you happen to be in town and nothing else is going on? Do you humbly receive criticism or do you immediately defend yourself? Oh, that one hit me this week. When you're considering what job to take or where to rent or buy a house, does your ability to serve a healthy local church affect your decision as much as your personal comfort? Are there desires that you have that you don't ultimately give into because you know Jesus is better? Even if you don't feel it at that moment, but Jesus, Jesus, you're better. So I'm not saying no to that, I'm saying yes to you. Are the words you speak to your children infused with gospel grace? not just directions to make your life easier and more comfortable. Welcome, parents, to my world. Are there ways you deny yourself, your own comfort, so you can selflessly serve your spouse, disciple another Christian, serve the vulnerable, reach out to the lost? Are there ways that you, this is where I'm making my life uncomfortable for the glory of Christ. I, I recognize, I almost didn't read those. They're hard. They're penetrating. I get it. I'm not like, hey, I got these answers. Come, come check out my answer sheet. No, I'm right there with you. And again, I praise God for the ways he's at work. And I just, God, do more in us. Keep shaping us by the gospel that saved us. Give us grace to deny ourselves, take up our cross. Why? because it leads us to Jesus. Do you see that? Jesus says, if you come after who? Me. Follow who? Follow me. Notice Jesus didn't say, if you follow my rules, if you follow my teaching, if you follow the Bible. No, if you follow me, if you write in your Bible, you might want to circle me, underline me. It's about Jesus. Jesus wants a relationship with us, not just obedience from us. Jesus knows we're created with a purpose to commune with God in relationship. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants us to have the good life, the happy life, communion with God, a life that is holy and happy. So the command of Christ here is not a legalistic burden. It is a life-giving invitation. That's what he tells us in verses 24 and 26. Let's look at those, verse 24 and 26. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. For what is for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So notice the four at the beginning of each one of these verses. Jesus is saying for because. He, he's telling us why we should have the cruciform life. Why? Because it's the good life, the eternally good life. Do you see that, beloved? Jesus doesn't say lose your life so you'll lose it. He says, lose your life so you'll save it. He desires us to have a full, abundant life. And it's interesting to note, that word life there is not the, the, the word for physical life. It's, it's talking about the soul, the core of who you are, your identity, the very essence of yourself. 
Try to save it, you'll lose it. What does that mean? Verse 25 helps us. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So it's important to hear all that Jesus says. All that Jesus is saying, he, he's, he's not saying, listen, I am against gaining possessions, wealth, influence. I'm, I'm, I'm against any of that. That's not what he's saying. There's nothing inherently wrong with having these things. Jesus is not against a holy ambition to use your God-given gifts to flourish and help others. He's not against that. The decisive issue is not what we gain, but where we place our hope for life. Do you see that, beloved? Here's what Jesus is saying. What's the point in gaining all the material possessions of the world, all the approval of others you want, even up to the whole world, if it still costs you your soul? He's saying, don't stuff yourself so full with the crumbs of the world you miss the feast of heaven. See, every culture points to certain things and says, if you gain those things, if you achieve this, then you'll be somebody. Then you'll be content and happy. Then you'll be valuable. But Jesus says, don't build your identity on your, your, your hope, your, your happiness on gaining things in this world. Don't look to possessions, praise, achievements, approval, relationship, family honor, career success. Don't look to those things to find your worth, to find yourself, to find your life. Those things won't fulfill you. They will eventually fail you. And these things have no currency in heaven. They'll cost you your soul. That's what Jesus references and reinforces in verse 26. When we're more concerned with our possessions, our position, our reputation, more concerned with receiving praise in this world, we'll be ashamed of Jesus. We won't desire to be publicly identified with him. We won't cherish him. We'll be embarrassed to admit he is everything and we are nothing. If we deny him upon his glorious return, he says it right there, he'll be ashamed of us. In other words, we'll stand before God not covered with the identity of Christ and his righteousness, but fully robed in the shame of our own sinfulness. And on that day, we'll be ashamed. Now, let me be clear. Jesus is not talking about lapse of courage or when you struggle with sin. He's not talking about that. Some of you are freaking out. Oh my goodness, that's not what he's talking about. Jesus is talking about a settled state of heart that refuses, refuses to find hope and happiness in him. It's unbelief, it's rejection of Jesus. Jesus wants us to be happy and holy, to have life in the fullest, truest sense. Do you see that? Whoever loses his life for my sake, will what? What will we do? Save it. Everybody say, save it. That's what he's saying. Lose your life and save it. Jesus wants us to have life. He's inviting us to the happy life. The cure for the disordered soul is not proving ourselves to God or anybody else, but losing ourselves in Christ. Colossians 3, Christ is your life, beloved. So we don't have to work to save our life. Isn't that freeing? To gain our identity and approval, we don't have to work for that. Jesus has done all the work necessary in Christ. You're a beloved child, a beloved daughter, a beloved son of God. That's your identity. And we enjoy and embrace that identity as we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. See, Jesus is showing us what it means to be truly human. Jesus was, was the truest human who ever lived. Fully happy in God, 
And he's telling us, if you want to flourish, if you want to commune with God like I did, follow me. And the road I traveled goes through a cross. Jesus invites us to reimagine the good life. The good life of denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him that we might enjoy communion with God. See, this is God's strange way. His kingdom, not like ours. Upside down, inside out, forward back. Jesus is saying, you have to lose the life you thought you needed that you might find the life you've always wanted. You have to lose the life you thought you needed to find the life you've always wanted. And in doing so, we don't become less ourselves, but more ourselves. We're set free from the pressure of playing the paltry little hero in our own little story. And we're swept up into the best story, the greatest story, the true story that's ever being told. The story of God sending his son, Jesus the Christ, to live and die and rise again that we might be reconciled back to God and enjoy him, heaven on earth together forever with all of God's people. That's what he's inviting us into. That's the good life. And he's asking us, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? He's the king. What did he do? He went to the cross, but he rose again. He rose again and he invites us into that good, eternally good life. May God give us the grace to respond out of love for him. Let's pray. God, you are glorious. You are magnificent. You are holy. You are righteous. And we're so thankful for the hope of Jesus. Thankful for the glorious good news of the gospel. Give us grace to respond Give us grace. Give us the courage to reimagine the good life. Do that, Lord, for the glory of your name, for the joy of our own souls, for the good of those around us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.